You're listening to Sound Opinions. I am Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we are tasked, a task we gave ourselves, lovingly, Greg, with creating a primer to understanding King Crimson. 13 studio albums, 15 live albums, and countless personnel changes. Where do you begin? Half a century of history. (laughs) Exactly. Let's start by discussing why we wanted to talk about this iconic band now. Last year, 2019, was the 50th anniversary of the debut album by King Crimson. The group actually formed in London in 1968. The first of its 13 legendary studio albums came out in 69. This is one of the most important bands in rock history, I think, mm, uh, sure. having, having been the cornerstone group of the whole progressive rock genre. Blurring that transition from the psychedelic period of the Beatles, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Peppers, into this new sound, the new No Boundaries, you mm-hmm. know, your classical music, avant-garde, uh, you know, structural stockhausen stuff, you name it, mm-hmm. and the kitchen sink right. played with incredible virtuosity. No doubt. And uh, many, many different lineups and incarnations of King Crimson with one sole constant. Only one. Robert Fripp, the guitarist, and I would say the philosophical oh, yes. leader of the group, in that no two albums should ever sound alike. Each incarnation of Crimson would be its own thing. It would not sound like any previous incarnation, nor would it sound like any future incarnation of King Crimson. So for some fans... It can be a bewildering group to love because no two versions of King Crimson, and there have been many, more than a half dozen, sound alike. And yet, that to me is the most amazing thing about this group, that it has maintained this standard for inventiveness throughout every one of its incarnations. Some you love less than others, but they're all incredibly intriguing. Well, and, and it's with that thought that we decided to offer listeners three ways in. We're going to divide the long 50-year career mm-hmm. of Crimson into three eras and focus on three albums that we think are all extremely rewarding. The rest, and you can sample at your, your own, yeah, right. your own There's hazard. There's a lot to dig into. You know, and i got to say, Greg, you and I know our pop music history, but with Crimson, such is the devotion of the fans that if we get a minor footnote wrong, we're going to hear about <laughs> it. But, but the, I think that's a testament to how deeply people love them. Mm-hmm. We have to put ourselves in London in 1968 to sort of get where this group was coming from. After the explosion in the summer of love of the kind of psychedelic Baroque pop epitomized by Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, a young guitarist named Robert Fripp is in a group called Giles, Giles, and Fripp. One of those two Gileses is a fantastic drummer named Michael Giles. They're making sort of psychedelic pop band like everybody in London was Mm. making in 67, 68. Uh, you know, we had a lot of bands that would give birth later to groups like Genesis and Yes and mm-hmm. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But Giles, Giles, and Fripp is lost to the sands of history because they didn't accomplish anything. Nature lends her subtle bounty, seasoning this rustic county. Cares are all Then, 
with Michael Giles, the drummer, Robert Fripp links up with a talented keyboardist and songwriter named Ian McDonald. Uh, McDonald at that point is exceedingly enamored of this new instrument that back then cost uh, what a car would cost. You know, you get a new MG or you buy a Mellotron. In this big, ungainly, rather ugly white box is the sound of an orchestra triggered by tapes, literal tapes running in this keyboard that will give you the sound. Now, that had been popularized by the Moody Blues. Mm But I, I think when we look at the history of the Mellotron as a predecessor of analog synthesizers, you know, the band that really, uh, besides the Moody Blues, put it on the map was King Crimson. King Crimson's debut album, In the Court of the Crimson King, is considered one of those landmark debuts of all time because it's one of those sort of perfect records or so rock history would have us believe from the cover art which is a horrifying sort of a uh, psychedelicized english version of munch's the scream <laughs> you know yeah. a face in mm-hmm. great distress and what is this crimson king with this mysterious face Crimson King of medieval legends is the king who reigns over great bloodshed, Mm -hmm. hence the Crimson. We are in the height of the Vietnam War. It is a violent time in Southeast Asia at the hands of the United States. King Crimson makes this debut that is in part beautiful orchestral, psychedelic folk pop, but in part some new sound we'd never heard before. The signature of that new part being... The lead song, 21st Century Schizoid Man. incredibly powerful, distorted. It was said that Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, saw King Crimson performing at a club in London uh, before their big debut. Their first really big show was in front of half a million people with the Rolling Stones at Hyde Park. But Hendrix saw a club gig, uh, and he got up and he said, this is the future of music, there's no point of any other band (laughs) doing anything, which is pretty high praise. So the guitar of 21st Century Schizoid Man, but the vocals, everything in this song is saturated, distorted, overloaded. You talk about an opening track that says, we are here, and you have not heard anything like this before. It's hard to think of others. interesting footnote you know kanye west samples it years later yeah uh, you know it still sounds ahead of its time no 
broken, the schools closed, the prisons open. We ain't got nothing. You talk about the Vietnam War context. When people talk about progressive rock, they think about fairy tales and fanciful Islands worlds. floating in space. And here they're singing about innocents raped with napalm fire and politicians' Ooh. funeral Ooh. pyre. I mean, they are right in the middle of the war that was consuming the world at that point in history. prepping this show for yeah. a couple of months. You know, A, it was the 50th anniversary of In the Court of the Crimson King last year, and it's a fantastic album. I remember buying it for like $4 at Corvette's, mm-hmm. you know, a department store right. in Jersey, uh, just because of the cover. And I'd heard this 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 name mentioned with reverence. I spent a lot of time with it. This is not a perfect album. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Fripp was never the primary songwriter in King Crimson. He certainly didn't sing. He had Greg Lake, uh, who would go on to great fame as one of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Mm -hmm. exceedingly talented vocalist and that wonderful, rich, baritone voice, right? You know, when he has Ian McDonald doing a lot of the songwriting, a lot of the orchestration with the Mellotron, there was a character named Pete Sinfield, who was the outside uh, lyricist writing these tales. And, you know, Court of the Crimson King is split between something like 21st Century Schizoid Man, which is very much based in what is happening in the moment after the summer of love is eclipsed by the summer of hate. In 1968, we have riots uh, across the USA, and then the war in Vietnam. And then there's, you know, something like I Talk to the Wind and Moonchild, <laughs> which are like your typical, your yeah. typical <laughs> I have smoked a whole lot of dope. I am lying on one of those English hillsides. Right. I'm imagining myself as a hobbit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I But what a range. You go from uh, Epitaph to 21st Century Schizoid, man. That is a huge range of uh, emotional and psychic territory for this band to be covering. Well, and, and, you know, they are really ignoring all genres. There is classical music. As I said, there is folk. There is jazz. McDonald had done time as a musician in the Army. So there are Mm. even marching music influences. Uh, There's improvisation. There's that classic British love of a Victorian era. Mm. You know, a little of that uh, kinks, Village Green Preservation Society. And somehow it all comes together.
And then they never duplicate it. never repeat it. You know, yeah. the band has fallen apart by the time the album comes out. McDonald and that incredible drummer, uh, Michael Giles, leave mm-hmm. uh, to do more cheerful, more upbeat, cooler music, man. Right? right? You know, because Fripp is a taskmaster. Yeah. And Fripp says, well, I can disband uh, King Crimson and you can stay or, uh, uh, you know, I'll lead us in a new direction. This has been his modus operandi. So although he is... For 50 years history, the driving force of King Crimson, the only consistent member, he has often completely broken up the band, uh, reshuffled it without even telling the people who'd been with him, sometimes for years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to point out the uh, ostensibly the title track. It's The album is In the Court of the Crimson King. The Court of the Crimson King is that massive, uh, majestic Yes. I, that's the only way I can describe it. Nine minutes, track. 26 seconds. And I, I remember hearing it again in that 2006 movie, uh, Children of Men. Mm. And it's used so well in that movie, and it's just so powerful and just staggering. That is kind of the, the promise and potential of progressive music in a lot of ways. You're thinking about these very classical kind of structures incorporated in a rock context. The purple plays his tune, the choir softly sing. in an ancient tongue for the court of the crimson. And, and, you know, even if it doesn't make any sense, because I have no idea who the Fire Witch is. Do you? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one part of True, the song. True, yeah. All these songs are What is the Return of the Fire Witch? There's the yeah. Return of the Fire Witch, and then There's the Dance of the, the Puppets. Da- dance of the, I think the Dance of the Puppets is that kind of disjointed. I don't know what it yeah. is. I don't know what's happening. The lyrics never made a lot of sense. I don't think Pete Sinfield's loss was significant to the band, nor Ian McDonald, who it yeah. must be said, has the two most disjunctive careers in mm. rock history. He goes from King Crimson, the first great progressive rock band, to... Foreigner. Foreigner! <laughs> You're as cold as ice! How does that happen? I don't know. I also have to just give a shout out to, you know, in the world of drum geek, modern drummer subscribers like me, right? Hmm. Michael Giles is a giant. I think the reassessment of his playing on this album started years ago when in every interview he gave, Neil Peart of Rush would say, Michael Giles yeah. is why I picked up the drumsticks. Mm. Yeah. And he was a drummer's drummer. Never did anything in the rock world, again, that got anything near this uh, level of recognition. But his drumming is just... And I think every progressive rock drummer who mm. follows tries to do what he's doing. That sort of jazz, odd time signature, incredible, sophisticated playing 
but with a rock drive. Right, right, exactly. That's Moonchild, an undeniable classic by King Crimson. Now, after a short break, we're going to look more at the discography of King Crimson, including their proto-metal turn on 1974's Red. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we are talking about the hugely influential progressive rock band King Crimson. Before the break, we were talking about their groundbreaking first album, 1969's In the Court of the Crimson King, with the classic 21st century schizoid man and songs like Moonchild. But the configuration that recorded that classic, guitarist Robert Fripp, Drummer Michael Giles, lead vocalist Greg Lake, Ian McDonald, Peter Sinfield, that lineup would not last. You know, we move on through that first phase, and again, changing the lineups all along. Fripp, you know, already developing the reputation as an incredible taskmaster, but sort of in a passive-aggressive way, that English passive-aggressive, you know, kind of behavior (laughs) that drives everybody nuts, but at the same time, they realize we're working with a genius, you know, we're we're working with a guy who's incredibly gifted and his drive and artistic ambition is drawing all these major talents to that group to to see what they can come up with. Well, and I just have to insert here because I don't know where else it's going to fit. The number of people who at one point were considered as uh, vocalists for King Crimson and rejected or who auditioned and they went in a different way. If you just look at that list, Elton John yeah. was maybe going to sing in Crimson. Didn't happen. Brian Ferry Brian of Ferry, Roxy yeah. Music. It's like, wow. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of people came and went, didn't even make it into the group. I mean, that's the standards were pretty darn high. By Red in 74, their seventh album... They had gone through a halcyon period where they were just going through band members and there was a lot of interpersonal feuding going on, people coming in and out of the band. It was down to a trio. It was Fripp, John Wetton on bass, and Bill Bruford on drums. Bill Bruford was a teenager when he saw the In the Court of the Crimson King era band perform. And like you were saying, blown away by Michael Giles and everything the band was doing on stage and going, this is the future, this is what I want to do. Thank you. Bruford would go on to play with Yes, he'd play with Genesis, uh, In and Out of Crimson. I found a fantastic interview with Bill. Uh, you've talked to him. Mm-hmm. I've always admired him. I never had the pleasure of talking to him. 
He said, when I was asked to join King Crimson, quote, it was, it, I knew it was going to be an interesting ride. <laughs> I wasn't given a set list, a reading list. J.G. Bennett, Gurdjieff, Castaneda, Wicca, personality changes, low-level magic, pyromanacy, all of this was the magus in the court of the Crimson King. Mm-hmm. This was going to be more than three chords and a pint of Guinness. Yeah, right. <laughs> he knew it. And, you know, Bruford has always talked to himself about operating in this world between rock and jazz. And I think he saw that same promise in King Crimson. You mm-hmm. can't really define what we're doing by any one genre, let alone any multiple genres. They were their own thing, their own sound. What are they? They're King Crimson. Right. There's no other way to describe it. This was very much true of Red, the 1974 album, which was performing an incredibly fractured and painful time. In fact, the band played its last gig of that era in July and Central Park in New York City, went in to record this album, and then promptly broke up. They never toured behind this record. They had just gotten rid of their violin player, David Cross, who had done some really nice work on some of their earlier records, and is actually heard on this record on a live jam called Providence, the penultimate track on the record. So they're down to this trio, Fripp, Wett, and Bruford, and they come up with five tracks that, to me, you know, despite the tension within the group, are incredible. Red, for example, to me, I think is almost like them pouring out all the tension that was going on in the studio into this incredibly abrasive, brutal track that a lot yeah. of people have said, this is like a proto-avant metal type of track. This is the future of metal music right here. of the new metal uh, movement revere Crimson. And if all you've heard is uh, Moonchild, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be like, what? Yeah. But but no. You know, Wetton would go on to do some fascinating things. I love the trio UK yeah. that he was in with Eddie Jobson, who uh, came in and did a little violin with Crimson in this era and later played with Roxy Music. Right. you And then was in Asia. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, I, the number of these um, progressive rock pioneers who came from the psychedelic era rode high with incredible invention throughout the '70s into the '80s. Who then decided I'm going to cash in and make pop music now for mm-hmm. MTV is is started. But Fripp never did that. Right. You know, in between incredible explosions uh, like Red, Fripp is making records with I'm sorry, Brian Eno. Mm-hmm. Right, must right. be said. He's playing with David Bowie, the right. incredible guitar on Heroes. Heroes. 
just for one day And you You can And he's going on these spiritual sojourns where he just goes and sits on the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. He contained multitudes, as they say. So that guy who that brought that abrasion to Red, that heavy, heavy riff that I think every guy who's picked up a guitar and played a form of hard rock or metal is probably memorized by now, you know, to a, a, a track like Fallen Angel. Talk about the twee side of the band. Mm -hmm. you, you go right to yeah. that. You know, and there's an oboe and a cornet on there. All these instruments you don't hear on rock records typically yeah. are nothing being woven like into an the sound, right? And and then you're gonna go into one more red nightmare, where this is you know a vivid nightmare of a plane crash. You know, Wetton's lyrics here, and and the song evokes that. You, you mentioned Giles's drumming on in the Court of the Crimson King. I think Bruford is just outstanding here. And on One More Red Nightmare, he was talking about, you know, listening to a lot of Billy Cobham and things like that. I mean, those cymbals sound like they're being thrown across a room and breaking glass. I mean, he's just slamming those things. And the thought that he walked away from Yes, which was at the height of its popularity, to join Crimson. Yeah. I mean, he was following an artistic muse because Crimson was a musician's band, right? right? And a fan's fan's band, but but they were not filling arenas the way Yes was. No, they, they had their cult following. They summed it all up in the last track, Starless, which is 12 minutes long, you mm -hmm. know? And it's another epic track. Sax, oboe, double bass. It goes into this long sort of contemplative midsection and then just builds and builds and builds. I really saw that track as trying to sum up everything that that first incarnation of King Crimson was. And then this was, in fact, their last album of the 70s. It came out in 1974, and Fripp and King Crimson were not heard of 
until years later, until the 80s. No, I mean, you know, that period uh, by the hardcore devotees is generally called 72 to 75, the the improvisers period, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And then uh, I'm watching TV. ABC uh, is trying to uh, jump the gun on Saturday Night Live with a new show called Fridays, right? And it's largely forgettable, except Michael Richards, who'd go on to play Kramer in Seinfeld, was pretty (laughs) funny, right? And then there's this band, and they play two songs. Elephant Talk and Thela Hunjinjit. I had not thought about King Crimson since buying in the court of the Crimson King for five bucks at the department store. And here they are with a completely new sound and some familiar faces. I'm a drum super geek. Bill Bruford is back with Robert Fripp. Tony Levin, mm-hmm. he played with Peter Gabriel. He's right. super cool. And then there's this guy, Adrian Ballou. I'm already a big Brian Eno fan. Remain in Light, right. produced by Eno for the Talking Heads. Adrian yeah. Ballou's on there. That's what he looks like. Kind of looks like David Byrne. And this band just blew my mind. I did talk to uh, Bruford, and I asked him, what was that like? Because they made a sequence of three albums in that period, Discipline in 81, Beat in 82, Three of a Perfect Pair in 1984. And everybody's thinking of King Crimson, if they thought about them at all, as this relic of another era. And here they made three albums in a row, starting with Discipline, put them right in the middle of what was happening in all the cutting-edge music of that time. You know, they they sounded of a piece with what was happening in the most avant-garde areas of new wave right they were they were right in the pocket with the new york city minimalism mm-hmm. you know it was a very stripped down sound bruford what was going on there he sounded nothing like the drummer that played on you red. had just talked about the sound of the cymbals yeah. on red there's no cymbals <laughs> there are no cymbals <laughs> yeah. bruford got rid of the cymbals he is playing some of the uh, simmons new you know very new at that time electronic drums right not for nothing is it called the rock gamelon he is into ultra-repetitive, minimalist, rhythmic beats yeah. that are as much to do with Terry Riley or Philip Glass as they are with anything in rock and roll. A lot of an Asian influence, a lot of an African influence. And Tony Levin's a fantastic bass player, but he was enamored of this new instrument, the Chapman Stick. Mm-hmm. Ten-string, polyphonic, two-handed tapping guitar yeah. that has both bass and treble. You know, And plus, for the first time, for the first time, Robert Fripp is sharing guitar, guitar duties with right. a second guitarist. Mm-hmm. So you know Adrian Ballou's got to be good if Fripp's going to let another well, guitarist on stage. He could see what Ballou could do. That's those sounds on Elephant Talk, on the, the first yeah. track on the record. I mean, you're going, what is that? I mean, at first I'm thinking, was that Levin with that stick? And, you know, Baloo later on talked about 
the effects that he was using to create the sound of what sounded like an elephant, you mm-hmm. know? Um, you know, apparently some mix of uh, an effects unit called a flanger and then a slide and there various other effects, but he was creating all these sounds that, that um, Fripp was going, hmm, we can do something with this. Bruford had a great quote. Whatever you did before you were in King Crimson, would you please not do that while you're in the group? <laughs> he wanted something new from every member yes. of that band, including Bruford. He basically made Bruford change his drumming style. Right. That's why you got this completely different sound than you had on Red. With Baloo, he goes, I want you to make a sound, but I want you to make that thing sound not like a guitar if right. you want to play with me. You know, and, and then the Chapman stick. I'm sure Fripp pushing the idea of, like, let's introduce this instrument and see what we can do with this in the context of a rock band. It's always about uh, technology. It's always about virtuosity. There are stretches where the songs get lost, but not at the expensive song, generally. And then also this, this kind of brainy approach. There's a song on Discipline, The Sheltering Sky, a nod to Paul Bowles. Yeah. And for the second of that Rock Gamelon album, uh, Beat, once again, Fripp, and he's giving a reading list to Adrian Blue, and it yeah. starts with Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the beat influence of Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs, Paul Bowles on Discipline is already there. It's even greater. Neil and Jack and Me mm-hmm. is one of the songs on Beat where they're singing about Neil Cassidy, mm-hmm. Jack Kerouac. writing all the lyrics. This is a, a matter of some frustration because Fripp, uh, like Eno, mm-hmm. they're both geniuses I revere, but the band works a 14-hour day, and then the other boys, Fripp or Eno, stay in the studio, and they improve. Right. This is difficult. When yeah. you're a musician as talented as Bruford, right. Levin, Blue, you know, it's like it, there's never any doubt that Fripp's the boss, but he doesn't act like a boss. No, no. And apparently during the Red Sessions, he famously didn't say a thing. I'm not going to judge anybody. <laughs> and they're all going, what? Wait yeah. a minute. You're, so you're going to judge us, but you're just not going to tell you're us what you're thinking. You're not going to tell us you're not going to give your opinion. On this record, uh, there were things like, you know, secretly tape recording Adrian Ballou, basically a field recording of Ballou describing this incident that occurred to him as he was walking around this London. This sort of near mugging. Right. And he tape recorded him, and then it ends up on the track that became Indiscipline. I carried it around with me for days and days, playing little games. An amazing piece of found sound that sort of incorporated, woven in mm-hmm. to this uh, this track. And, you know, Blue apparently was okay with it, you know, but he wasn't. He didn't give his permission to be recorded. All of a sudden, it's just showing up on the track. I did. I'm thinking of a song like Elephant Talk. It's very much in the mode of the talking heads, right? right? You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. Well, it's that Burroughs cut-up thing, too. Yeah. Like, you know, words that sound good together, but don't necessarily make sense initially, you know? Fights, answers, articulate announcements. It's only talk. 
So uh, uh, Blue is an interesting addition as a vocalist because the other ones had all been more traditional singers. You know, you think about John Wetton. Great voice, Greg Lake. I Blue is singing very much David Byrne-influenced style. Yes. A very strangulated, agitated. Again, it sounds very much of a piece with what's going on in contemporary music at that time, but it's sort of outside of it at the same time, which to me is the genius of, of what King Crimson has always been doing. Answers, announcements. It's only talk. What are your thoughts about King Crimson? Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and leave a message with your opinion and why. Coming up, we'll discuss the lasting influence of King Crimson and we'll pay tribute to Gang of Four guitarist Andy Gill. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis. And before the break, we were talking about King Crimson's 1980s rebirth. Uh, the lineup at that time included founder Robert Fripp, Bill Bruford, and featured the additions of vocalist-guitarist Adrian Ballou and Tony Levin on bass guitar and Chapman Stick, his signature instrument. But like other incarnations of the band, this lineup wasn't meant to last either. Three great albums, a number of great tours. I saw them. They blew my mind. And then, without even telling anybody, it's over. Bruford had said, I guess Robert was thinking you might as well quit while you're ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, King Crimson ends in 1984 for another 10 years. Right. Um, you know, our favorite periods, as we've said, are the debut album, Red, and uh, Discipline, and that rock gamelan era. You can get a headache and or drive yourself blind following King Crimson mm. in the years that followed. For a while, uh, in the mid-90s, there were the double trios. It was like two, two, two bands in one. <laughs> then something called the Seven-Headed Beast. Then there was the Double Quartet. Crimson continued through last year. They were out there touring. They were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the debut album. On the rare occasions when they have played older music, they've completely reinvented it. Yeah, they they just don't look back. Nostalgia is anathema to Fripp. He never looks back. He's always give me something new, which to me is an admirable virtue in a genre that is overcome with nostalgia now. 50 years on, most bands are you know, reprising their greatest hits Happy and make, to continuing to make money on that. And he's never operated that way. You know, when you're talking about the bands that have been influenced by King Crimson, Greg, they are legion. But which Crimson are we talking yeah, right. about? 13 albums, 13 almost completely different bands. You know, the Flaming Lips and their little brother band, the Star Death and the White Dwarfs, actually covered, uh, recorded all of In the Court of the Crimson King. 
But then we have more esoteric influences. The Mars Volta. Primus. A lot of crimson in Primus. Fish. The parts of fish I like more, anyway. Right. Who in the prog rock yeah. world is a god in his own right, like Fripp, uh, you know, remixed some of the Crimson mm-hmm. reissues. The, the now unfortunately named great metal band Isis, very much influenced by King Crimson. a huge fan of King Crimson and specifically Red and I think what he saw in Fripp was the punk inside. This This guy wasn't playing by anybody's rules except the ones that he made up. If there's one thread in the million interviews uh, Robert Fripp has given since 1968 or 69, it is that he hates the music industry. (laughs) You know, I mean, it has given him a living, and he's played on innumerable great records, like I said, outside of King Crimson, but he just hates the whole business. Yeah, no, and and, and it, it soured him on it to the point where he would be on stage playing in the shadows. Yeah. Everybody who is a King Crimson fan is desperate to see this man perform because he's such a genius musician and he in response would play in the deepest corners of that stage sitting down seating the front to whoever was you know adrian blue or whoever was uh the lead front singer at the time playing the role of basically an off-stage ancillary to his own group you know which is an odd way to to perform but that's why he is revered in many ways because he does not perform or act like the typical rock star Have you got thoughts about King Crimson, a favorite album, or era? Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and leave a message with your thoughts.
That is the amazing feedback guitar intro of Gang of Fours Anthrax. That is courtesy of the great guitarist Andy Gill, one of the founders of the band who died recently at the age of 64. Widely regarded Greg as one of the most important guitar players of the post-punk era, and he certainly holds a special place in your heart, I know. Yes, Jim, absolutely. Uh, I always thought of Gang of Four's 1979 debut album, Entertainment, exclamation point, uh, as one of the perfect albums of the last 40 years. Great debut, great album, a signpost of the whole post-punk era. Gill's guitar playing, you know, everybody had thought that everything that could be said with the guitar had been said. I mean, we'd had Jimi Hendrix, right? Right, what else is Where do you go from there? I think Gill found a new approach to the instrument that uh, ushered in an entire era of bands and approaches to that instrument. He was the anti-lead guitarist. He was anti-solo. He made that guitar sound brittle and cold instead of warm and and yeah. voluptuous. You angular. Know? Angular is the rock critic always applied word. Yeah. to Gang of Four and Andy Gill in particular. You know, in a typical band, the hierarchies, you know, the guitars on top and the rhythm sections mm-hmm. kind of support instruments. In Gang of Four, I talked to Gill a, a number of times where he was describing the, the approach as horizontal. We were lining these instruments up side by side where the vocals and the guitar were on equal footing with the drums and the bass. You know, fortunately, they had tremendous uh, musicians on each of those instruments, Hugo Burnham on drums, Dave Allen on bass, John King with those very distinctive sing-speak vocals, and then Gill alongside that, using noise as a texture and an approach to uh, ornamenting the songs rather than solos or fills. Here is a bit of an interview that we did with uh, Andy Gill uh, where he's describing his guitar playing. Well, I'm a bit contrary. Um, <laughs> and that is definitely part of it, yeah. It's just that there's enough noodling in the world, you know, there's enough guitar solos, you know. And and the noise thing is somehow inherently more interesting. And ironically, I'm not technically, I, I can't do a backwards Mixlidian scale down the guitar, you mm. know, or, or all this stuff that people can do. But I just really see it as a, as a sort of noise machine and want to use it to add effect and color to what to to the structure of the thing and i I kind of see the you know the bass and drums as being this kind of grid almost like iron girders that are holding this thing together Mm. and the guitar can either go along with that and uh, reinforce that or it can be splattered across it like a sort of jackson pollock kind of you know yeah so it does different things at different times. Yes, Gil, you know, his approach was revolutionary. Uh, you can hear it in, on those first few records, Entertainment, as I mentioned, as well as Solid Gold, Songs of the Free and Hard. Gang of Four had intermittent reunions throughout them. The one constant through them all was Andy Gill, hugely influential, as I mentioned. Uh, when you think about uh, artists as diverse as R.E.M., Pylon, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, mm-hmm. whose debut album Gill produced, uh, Franz Ferdinand, The Rapture, Future Heads, Radio 4, Block Party, uh, all of them uh, mentioning Gill as a, a, a transformative uh, guitarist in that late 70s, early 80s period, bringing that instrument into a new era. A great example of this playing from the debut album, Naturals Not In It, from Gang of Four on Sound Opinions.
That was Naturals Not In It by Gang of Four in tribute to Andy Gill, the guitarist, dead at the age of 64. Greg, uh, his surviving bandmates, John King, uh, Hugo Burnham, Dave Allen, put out a great statement uh, and underscored uh, how much they laughed together, but how they also wanted to change the world. And the political outlook, uh, unapologetically leftist, music can change the world, or at least it can change you, and then you go out and change the world. That was a big part of their inspiration. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, we believe that everyone is a critic. This time, the critics are on the spot. You, the listeners, are going to ask us questions, and we're going to try to respond as uh, openly and honestly as we can. That will be fun. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things. The show is produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Wrap around my finger like a ring, ring, ring. They just like puppets on a string, string, string. I put it down, they hold me up. They do way too much, so I just let it ring, ring, ring. New messages. Hi, Jim and Craig. This is Casey calling from Mason, Ohio. I'm calling to talk about your most recent episode about musicians in acting roles. I guess my favorite recently is Chicago native Jennifer Hudson and her role in the Dream Girl. After going from American Idol in the third season to getting the Best Supporting Actress Award for Academy Awards. Love the show. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Bye. Hi, my name is Alan from Chicago. I love y'all's show. I can't believe, though, if you're going to talk about uh, musicians in the Big Lebowski but you left out Jimmy Dale Gilmore, the guitarist from Texas who plays Smokey, the guy who crosses the line and John Goodman pulls the gun, you know? Smokey, you're entering world of pain. Walter, come on, it's just, hey man, it's Smokey, so his toe slipped over a little, you know? It's just a game, man. This is a league game. This determines who enters the next round robin. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't. Am I wrong? Yeah, but I wasn't over. Give me the marker, dude. I'm marking an eight. Smokey, my friend. You're entering a world of pain. Walter, man. All right, thanks. Hey, Jim and Greg. My name is Sam from Oregon. The best film acting performance by a musician is Xander Slosh from The Circle Jerk. His performance in Straight to Hell, which is a film by Alex Cox, which also stars The Pogues, and... Joe Strummer and Elvis Costello, but the song Salsa y Ketchup by Xander Slash's character Carl and Carl's disco Wiener Haven, I think is by far my favorite performance by a musician in a film. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Athena had called this going Athena day all right thanks for taking my call love the show see you later hey guys this is ted calling from mount kisco new york calling about the musicians as actors show that just happened you know, when I heard you announce it, the first name I thought of, and I was surprised not to hear her mentioned, was Cher. Do you believe in life after love? I can feel something inside me say, I really don't think you're strong enough, no. Maybe it was an obvious choice, but I want to highlight uh, her work in, to use the parlance of sound opinions, another buried treasure film. Peter Bogdanovich's Mask, where Cher plays a uh, basically a motorcycle gang groupie uh, in California, raising a son who's got a rare disease that causes a facial deformity. And she, it's, a, it's a brilliant movie. Her performance in it is just excellent. I'm going to need some additional information. Look, Mr. Sims, you know what? Don't jerk me around. I'm not in the mood. I've had a real crappy day so far. First, I find out that we're in the wrong school district. I got to come down here and play pussyfoot with you. This is a copy of our lease. This is a copy of Rocky's birth certificate. And this is his last report card from Stevens Junior High School, where he was in the top 5% of his class. And I got some additional information for you. Uh, my lawyer's name is B.D. Higgins, and he's told me of my rights. If you give me any at all, he's going to drag your ass into court. Love the show, guys. Thanks. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.